Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm in the Taft Law Office in downtown Indianapolis on the 35th floor of the Regions Bank Building. Because I'm old enough to remember when this was first built as the Indiana National Bank Building a long time ago in the 1970s. My, the reason I'm here is my guest uh, today on the podcast is Fred Glass. Fred is the author of Making Your Own Luck from a Skid Row Bar to Rebuilding Indiana University Athletics. And just a real quick uh, thumbnail uh, sketch. He's a former chief of staff to Governor Evan Bayh. He was instrumental in arranging for the construction of Lucas Oil Stadium and Indy hosting a Super Bowl. And most recently, IU Athletic Director for 10 years. And for full disclosure, Fred Glass is my brother-in-law. So, Fred, welcome. Great to have you today. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for your interest. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, I loved your book, and, and um, because I know you, that had something to do with it, but that wasn't the only reason. I'm going to get into several parts of the book. I can't get into everything because <laughs> there's so much there. We would go on for hours. But you do provide a look at your life, really from your dad's bar on East Street in Washington on the east side of downtown all the way to your time as athletic director. You spend a lot of space in your book on what you learned through all those experiences. So just uh, to start this off, looking back on that, what are the most important things you learned in life and during that span? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks again for having me on. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a broad uh, question. I think, I think ultimately what I learned and what I try to uh, communicate in the book is that it's 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 ordinary people that get opportunities to do fairly extraordinary things, and I feel like I've had a chance to do fairly extraordinary things in my career that I never anticipated. Um, but I'm just I'm just a knucklehead that grew up in the back of a Skid Row bar. You know, had an alcoholic father. Um, was up to a lot of monkey business when I was younger. I was you know. Um, you know, I did, I was kind of a bad boy and, um, through, uh, maybe accidentally backing into opportunities where I pushed myself out of my comfort zone, I was able to go from that sort of nondescript background to doing, um, some pretty uh, fun things. So I, I hope it's a fun book. Um, it was a, I think it's a vulnerable book. I'm pretty honest about my life. Um, I think people enjoy the behind the scenes look at the IU part of it, but hopefully I, I think it's ultimately a book about empowerment, about, um, encouraging people to look for and seize opportunities, see that a, a goof like me could do it. Um, maybe they could do it too and, and have a little fun along the way when they read the stories. 
Well, you're pretty tough on yourself at times, and, that, and that's how you wrote the book. But it is a very vulnerable book, and you do go into a lot of detail. And I want to start off with uh, someone I did not get to know as well as your mother. I got to know your mother pretty well. Did not get to know your father as well. But you're very open, and you already talked about this, about your father's alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that impact your childhood? Yeah, so it was it was it was hard, Larry. Um, you know, my dad was a very good man, um, but he had his demons. You know, and he, and in retrospect, he was clearly self medicating that, um, and he was uh, an alcoholic, uh, a, you know, a bad alcoholic in terms of needing it. Uh, he wasn't abusive, you know, to, to mom as far as I know or me, um, but he's never home, you know, and. I had a very unstable life, and I was searching for, in retrospect, control through mantras and prayers and trying to control the uncontrollable. And um, several years ago, I read this book, Adult Child of Alcoholics. I'd recommend it to any of your listeners who are dealing with uh, you know, having parents who are alcoholics or a loved one who had parents who are alcoholics, because it was very um, comforting in a way because it, 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 it revealed why I was the way I was in, in some ways, and it was uh, sort of interesting. But um, So it, it, uh, it was hard, and it led to what I understand in retrospect were tough anxiety attacks. I'd have these uncontrollable shaking at night, um, which really defined me to myself for a long, long time. And I never told anybody about it. I never told my parents about it. You'd think your kids would tell you if they had something like that. But that's this reminder that you just don't really know what's going on with your kids. And my parents didn't know that was going on with me. I didn't want to spend the night at people's houses because I was afraid I was going to, you know, uh, lose my cookies or, or have them stay over. So it was a very defining, difficult, long-lasting part of my life. But and, – and I think I'd wish on anybody. But I think it's actually made me a much better person. I think it's made me a more empathetic person. I think it's made me a better husband, a better father, a better grandfather, much like the bar. I hated growing up in the back of that bar. But I learned so many great lessons there that I think those two things um, were critical to my development um, as a leader and in other roles. And I I hope it um, helps people understand that if they're dealing with things that they wish maybe their parents had done differently or had been foisted upon them to try to look at what the positives were in that and not, and not, um, you know, have a lot of uh, consternation about it. I want to talk about your mother just for a moment, because your mother worked for Indianapolis public schools for years, dealt with children and of course their families by extension, dealing with some of the most difficult situations a child could ever deal with. And she dealt with that every day and still dealt with your father and all the issues that you were having in your family. So talk a moment, you write about her extensively and talk about your mom. Yeah, well, thanks, Larry. Um, So, you know, I think all mothers are extraordinary to their children, you know, and, and, and I think my mother was extraordinary. She grew up on a farm. Her mother died um, in childbirth for the next baby, so she grew up without a mom. Um, she, uh, you know, no running water, heated water on the stove, all that stuff. Um, had had polio as a young child, so she, she had difficulty walking. Um, had TB, spent five years, her formative teenage years in a, in a TB sanitarium in Fort Wayne. 
um, got a GED, but then went on to get her undergraduate and, and master's degrees from Indiana, and as you point out, was a social worker in the public schools for 35 years. So I was very fortunate that um, that that I had a model of a strong woman early on, and she was ahead of her time, really, in, in, in just that uh, fairly short distance ago. She, she was a professional woman, you know, working full-time at a time when hardly any of my friends' mothers were, were that way. And, and I think that was a great gift, right? Because um, uh, it gave me an appreciation and a comfort with strong women. And, and you know your sister can be fairly strong-willed uh, as a strong woman. I'm, you know, comfortable with that, attracted to that. Um, my uh, daughter's strong, a strong woman. Um, my son married a strong woman. And that sounds trite, but I don't think it is. And, and, and in the workplace and other places, um, I've I've um, wanted to work with strong women, and that's I think a, a testament to to what my mother modeled for me. Um, I suppose you know I, I didn't really consider her an enabler of my father. Um, 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 I think they, they they modeled a really strong marriage, notwithstanding and maybe because of. Um, his alcoholism, but she she uh, she uh, ministered to the people in the twilight of our society. You know, people in in tough situations, tough schools, and she never lost her idealism, which I always admired. I feel like I sort of lost mine over time. Mom never did, and she would come to our house sometimes, like right after school, and say, I "Want to see our kids?" And say, "I've got to see some kids with the lights still on." Um, because unfortunately, even young kids um, that she was dealing with, because of their circumstance, you know, the lights had started to go off. Uh, but she never gave up on them, and, and uh, you know, I admire her and miss her a great deal. There's so many people you talk about in this book, and I want to just one example I found. I'm going to only read one passage from the book, and this has to do. This is on page 103. If anybody gets uh, the <laughs> book later on, this has to do with Mitch Daniels. And you were working with Bart Peterson at that time, who was mayor of Indianapolis. They had to deal with the state on the plans to build what we now know as Lucas Oil Stadium. And I'm going to just read two paragraphs, and the he or his is we're talking about Mitch Daniels here. And I quote from the book, In his first conversation with Bart, he raised the subject rather sheepishly, almost unwillingly, but thereafter he was always resolute and unapologetic. He demanded the state control the construction, notwithstanding that no state entity existed for that purpose and that a Republican-controlled Capital Improvements Board, or CIB, had been built Um, had built every capital improvement in Indianapolis through its entire history, including the last major CIB capital improvement, the new Pacers Arena. That building had been built by a Republican mayor and a Republican-controlled CIB with the active support of the then-Democratic governor, Frank O'Bannon. I did and do respect and admire Mitch Daniels. He is smart, practical, and innovative. He wants to get big, important things done. I also like him personally as he is interesting, funny, and engaging. In fact, the subsequent uh, to the stadium conventions that are legislation and its related issues, I feel I've enjoyed a quite cordial relationship with him. 
and was the beneficiary of his enthusiastic and effective support of the Indianapolis Super Bowl bid. I appreciate how he expressly eschewed exploiting divisive social wedge issues while he was governor. That's why his decision to take from Indianapolis the stadium convention center project and even worse, the CIB's money to ultimately operate and maintain those buildings was so unexpected and disappointing. It was unprecedented, unjustified, and gratuitously disparaging. And I'll end the quote there. Here's what I am astounded about the way you wrote this book. Because you really take Mitch Daniels to task when he was governor, but you praise him at the same time. It's like you're trying to do an overall evaluation, and you do this with a lot of the subjects you write about in this book. Talk about how you approach Mitch Daniels in that instance, and just the different personalities you encountered during your career. Now, I appreciate that, Larry. So early on... um as you're thinking about what to write about and all that, um, I, I didn't want this to be a kiss-and-tell book. I, I, I didn't want to um, highlight or even discuss salacious um, you know, episodes or interactions that, that might have sold a few more books and might have gotten a little more attention, but, but that's not what, what I wanted it to be about. Because I thought that detract, would detract from the main message, which I hope, again, is one of, uh, of empowering um, People. So whether it's coaches or whatever, um, I I really didn't delve into what I think is personal interactions with them. I, uh, perhaps uh, as an indication of being the adult child of an alcoholic, I, I feel like I was fairly brutally honest about myself and, and, and my shortcomings, which I think is an important part of the book to um, – sort of support my thesis that it's ordinary goofy people that can can aspire to doing sort of cool things as an aside i've been surprised but pleased at the events that i've been doing where you know i bet there's been a dozen people that come up to me and say you know my dad was an alcoholic and i'd never really talked about it or i had debilitating um, anxiety attacks and i never talked about it and, and this book's enabled me to talk to my wife or my kids or my partners about it and so that's been um rewarding but um and then and then you know i'm probably um i i think with regard to uh, uh governor daniels president daniels I, I tried to be factually based um and we're all package deals and i do admire him um, for all the reasons I described, and I do appreciate how supportive he was in the Super Bowl, um, but but that doesn't mean I don't think he was wrong about how he approached the stadium and and in, in I hope non hyperbolic or um, incendiary terms I described that because I think it was important and I think it's important to have a, a fairly contemporary history of that um, of that piece. But I, I don't harbor any ill will toward him, and and uh, and I hope that comes through in the book. And one aspect of that specific incident I want you to talk about, because at that point in time, when Mitch Daniels, the governor at that time, made those demands on the city, you were working for Bart Peterson. He had a decision to make. You know, would he go along with what the governor wanted to do? 
he could have walked away and said the state wouldn't go along with us. The Colts are going to have to leave town. We cannot build a new stadium. He could have done that. Other, a few other cities like St. Louis have done things like that. But yet uh, what I was impressed with is Bart Peterson, who had to swallow some pride to take that from what was happening with state government, did that. And he did that based on the way you described it in the book because he thought it was best for the future of the city. Talk a moment about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad for you to mention that because, and you know, I'm a homer. I mean, I worked for uh, Bart Peterson, uh, so you have to put that bias in the filter. But but I really think that 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 a hallmark of Bart's tenure as mayor was that that he did what he thought was the right thing over political expediency, and the um, stadium is an example of that. He could have taken his ball and gone home, as it were, and 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 blamed the state. Um, but he didn't. He he agreed to this unprecedented taking um, of 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 the, the control of the stadium, um, and then and then when the state still couldn't get the deal done, he went and begged the Democratic caucus to uh, support it. The same caucus that uh, the state had derided as uh, or suggested was uh, was not competent, perhaps even corrupt. So um, I think that was a profile and courage moment. Um, I think, you know, his um, um, doing what he needed to do um, to um, support public safety by alleviating pressure on the police pension through a modest uh, 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 tax increase during an election, which that in and of itself wasn't, wasn't his undoing. It was the hysteria over the um, property tax increase, which was a state um, uh, function, by the way, not local. Um, I, I think just underscores that the that the guy wanted to do things uh, to better the city more than further his own political ambition. While you were working for Governor Bias as chief of staff, and I've obviously known you for a while, I still remember the wedding you and my <laughs> sister had. It was a great wedding, a terrific <laughs> party, by the way. Uh, but you came closer to being appointed to a federal judge than I ever realized. So explain what happened there. Yeah, so um, when, when I got a law, out of law school, I clerked for uh, Judge S.U. Dillon, who had always been a, a hero of mine. And I, um, uh, it's actually sort of funny, I was all set to go to a big law firm, had accepted, not hadn't accepted, had been offered a job at this big law firm. And at the last minute, I saw that Judge Dillon was looking for a law clerk. And he posted on, you know, back then, Larry, of course, it wasn't internet monster.com and stuff it was uh, literally a three by five card thumbtacked to a bulletin board that said i'm looking for a law clerk you need to be top 10 percent of your class law review and have a working knowledge of indiana university basketball which <laughs> kind of captured my imagination and underscored or emphasized why i liked uh, judge dylan so much um didn't hear anything forever and then he called me and wanted me to say yes or no on the spot he offered me the job and i said well I, you know i've i've uh got another offer and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, okay, well, I'll give you till Monday morning. This was late Friday afternoon. Um, I went to see my um, um, dean of the law school, Jerry Bepko, and, and he gave me some great advice. He said, look, when you're deciding what to do in your career, always pick the option that creates more options downstream, which sounds super pedestrian, like Mr. Obvious, but it's like really powerful advice that I've used my whole career. So I through that prism, I took the clerkship, and it was awesome. Well, fast forward uh, in 1992, um, and uh, Bill Clinton's elected president, 
And after he's elected president, Judge Dillon calls me and says, I'm going to retire uh, in the next 60 days. Use that information as you seem fit. So he was clearly giving me a head start on potentially being his successor. And, and I'll always appreciate that and be flattered by that um, because he knew with a Democratic president, a Democrat would be um, put in to succeed him. That was his timing. And because both Republican, both, both senators were Republican, it would fall to the Democratic governor to recommend to the president who the new judge would be. So I went to Evan by and I said, you know, I'd like to do this. And he said, okay, you know, you'll be my guy. And so it looked like I was going to get it, which I was super thrilled about because I'd always wanted to be a federal district court judge and to succeed my guy, uh, you know, S.U. Dillon would have been awesome. Well, the president also appointed Zoe Baird to be the attorney general. Some of your uh, older listeners may recall that um, she had an issue because she had a housekeeper that she didn't withhold uh, taxes for. Um, seems like a quaint scandal by modern standards, but in any event, that was enough to make her withdraw her nomination. And Barbara and I had a similar issue because we had a babysitter, and we didn't you know, treat her as a formal employee and withhold her taxes and all that. And so I thought in light of what happened with Zoe Baird, I needed to gracefully tell Evan that, that I would not pursue that, which I didn't. Um, and that was a huge disappointment to me. Um, and, um, I, I was very bummed about it, but, um, it turned out to be a great blessing for me because I don't think I really would have liked it that much. It's a very, um, cloistered, uh, environment. I like to be out and about. I get a lot of energy from being out and about. While the, 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 the salary seemed huge by the paltry amount I was making working for the state, in retrospect, it would have been a an income limiter. Not that that's the be-all and end-all, but with four kids and all that, it would have been more of a challenge just, you know, as a, as a, a way of living. So my, my takeaway from that was... Um, our greatest disappointments can be our greatest opportunities if we don't let them deter us. And and I didn't let that deter me. I moved out in the practice of law and so forth. And really, that was the greatest disappointment that I had until um, Bart Peterson lost his bid for re-election. Um, um, but then, uh, ironically, that turned out to be uh, actually, for me personally, uh, a huge blessing in disguise. And this is a constant theme in your book. And those are two of the best examples you just used right there. That even though losing the judgeship and uh, Gov uh, Mayor Peterson losing that bid for a third term, uh, your theme here is that bad things happen for a reason and that leads you into better things. For example, if you had had the judgeship, you never would have been involved with Lucas Stadium, the Super Bowl. You never would have had the opportunity to be the athletic director at Indiana University. So, that is a, a theme of your book, and and I, when I when you, when I think about what I took away from your book, that is the biggest theme that that I think is somewhere in just about every page. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right, and it's it's you know one of the things they hammer into the heads of kids who participate in intercollegiate athletics is it's not what happens to you, it's it's how you react. This idea of how high can you bounce, what, how how resilient are you, and I think resiliency 
is maybe the thing that 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 the kids that um, I worked with taught me the most. That they they've they've they they make a bad play, they got to bounce back. They lose a big game. There's another game coming up, and there's a certain amount of mental toughness that comes out of that. And and uh, and I and I think I, they taught me a lot about. Um, resilience and a, and a big part about resilience is just not letting our disappointments define us um, and and I think that's a that's a real I, I'm glad that you took that from the book because I think that's a real hallmark of it you know my parents grew up in rural areas near Lagodi Indiana a small rural community in the southwest part of the state Martin County and there's a story in the book about how you did stretch the truth a little bit because my sister Barbara and all of us, we never grew up in Ligoti. We certainly spent a lot of time down there visiting our relatives, but uh, you did stretch the truth a bit to get a Ligoti connection. Talk about that. All right. Yeah, Barbara's still kind of pissed about that. I, I, I didn't really appreciate when we bring that up. So, so Evans elected 1988, and um, he ran on a, on a uh, good government platform about cleaning up what I think clearly were some abuses um, that had accumulated over time of, of single party rule. Um, so so he wasn't going to do things the old way. And the laws had changed about how you could handle political hiring and firing since the last time government had changed from one party to another. So the point of all that is among, among Democrats, an active kind of party Democrats, there was this pent-up fever to kind of take over government and take control of the license branches and the state park ends and all the things that, uh, you know, DOT and all the things that traditionally had changed in a party. And we weren't really doing it that way, um, both for, you know, philosophical reasons and legal reasons. And uh, a lot of the party apparatus was pretty unhappy about that. So we had a meeting in southern Indiana. I think it was in Washington, um, Dave, we call that Washington D.C., Washington Davies <laughs> County, um, and it was it was some of us in the governor's office, and then all these county chairmen and district chairmen, and they were just giving us hell. And I'm looking for anything to try to you know connect myself with them, and so I said, well, it's good to be down here, you know, in Washington, and I, you know, I married a little gal from down here on 50 in Lagodi, <laughs> and like Bart Peterson still teases me about that. So as you know. Barb's not from Ligoti. Her dad hadn't lived in Ligoti for 40 years. But I'm like, yeah, I married a mountain. <laughs> I, married, I married a Martin County gal. <laughs> and, and, and actually, it got some surprising traction, you know, kind of connecting with the rank and file a little bit. But the bad part was, after that, we'd go to political events. And, and these people would go, now, honey, they'd tell your sister, now, honey, whereabouts in Ligoti are you from? And she would just shoot daggers at me, you know. <laughs> So, but you know, is any port in a storm, Larry? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta work with what you got. Being chief of staff for a governor, I can't imagine what that must be like. How tough that can be, because the old saying is, whether it's a president or a governor or whomever, if it's good news, the governor will call you. If it's bad news, the chief of staff will call you. So you're always dealing with some of the toughest situations that a governor deals with, and you're on call all the time. I remember you had that beeper or cell phone, whatever you had in those days, you were on call all the time. So just spend a couple of minutes talking about your time as chief of staff. Well, first of all, it was, it was a fabulous experience and it's so great that I got it at a fairly young age. And one of the other things I talk about in the, in the book, and, and there's several examples of this is I've 
had opportunities presented to me that I just didn't think I had the chops to do it. I, I didn't think I was ready. I didn't think I had the wherewithal to do it, whether that's, you know, um, working for the governor originally, becoming chief of staff, heading up the Super Bowl piece, becoming AD. Um, but, but what I challenge the, the readers to do is don't think about how you feel about it. Think about how the person offering the job feels about it. Because if they have the confidence in you, you shouldn't question their judgment. They know the job. They know what they want. And you should be willing to kind of jump over that wall and and do that. And, th- and that's that's when I became chief of staff. I think I was 31 years old, which seemed fine at the time. But looking back on it, I mean, that's pretty young. I didn't have a lot of experience in that. I just, you know, joined the administration. Um, with the governor, so so the first part of it was just taking the job um, was 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 another kind of uh, confirming episode for me that 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 you ought to take opportunities that people give you even if you're not sure you're ready, and then uh, and then it was fascinating and it was it was hard and it was um, uh, it was it, it would wear on you, um, but it was very interesting, very exciting. I had to learn a lot from Evan By. Um, I really enjoyed it. Just a little vignette on that when I um, when I left. So originally I was going to work for the governor for two years. I ended up working for him for four and a half. The last two and a half as his chief of staff. And when I left, um, went to practice law, and I went back to the state house a couple weeks later. And literally the uh, woman who was the uh, beat writer for the Gary Post Tribune asked me if I'd had a facelift um, <laughs> because – you know, the weight of the world had coming off my shoulders. And that was the moment when I really realized what that job had been doing to me. And, and it, was, it was actually good that I moved on from it. Well, I, I love the part about uh, the, the period of time you were athletic director. Before I do that, I really do think making your own luck, when you made that your, uh, the, the title of your book, you do spend a lot of time in the book talking about that, what you just discussed, that you should never turn down an opportunity because you don't think you're ready. You know, somebody offered you that job because they thought you were ready. The very last job I had in government before I retired was a management job. I only applied because a friend of mine basically pushed me to do it, never expected to get the offer. When I did, I didn't know what to say, so I said yes. I mean, <laughs> good. And I uh, spent the last six years in a tough job, but I, it's, I got a lot accomplished. But I want to talk about the athletic director uh, time. Uh, you spend some time in the book uh, talking about your experience with coaches. I mean, that's a high-profile decision you make as an AD, hiring and firing coaches. And firing anybody is not easy, but when you're at that when you're under that kind of public scrutiny, there's really nothing quite like that. And I kind of felt that, and then you tell me if that's true, you, you did pull a few punches, I think, in trying to explain that. I think you were trying to protect some people, and I understand that. But explain and, and just how, how, that's, how that works, and what it's like to be under that microscope, that public spotlight, and you're firing coaches and hiring coaches and everybody has an idea who should be hired and fired all the time, including some of your biggest donors, and you have to figure out a way to finesse that. I'd like you to spend a moment talking about that. No, absolutely. And and just sort of before I f- focus on that, I do want to mention something about the, 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 the book title. I almost didn't name it Making Your Own Luck because I felt like it connoted that I had done it all myself. I'd pulled myself up by the, my bootstraps out of the gutter or something like that. And that's, and that's not the case at all. Um, I have had tons of tailwind um, and tons of advantages in my life. 
you know, just my parents are both first generation college graduates, but they were college graduates. They had their challenges with my dad's alcoholism, but I grew up in a two parent um, household. I went to a Jesuit prep school for God's sakes. I mean, that's like almost the definition of privilege. Um, I haven't been discriminated against because of who I am, because of my race, because of my sexual orientation. So I, I don't take lightly all the advantages that I, I have, and I don't want to suggest to anybody that this is this amazing Horatio Alger story of, of somebody uh, beating all the odds. But what I do think it, I am is a very ordinary person with a very ordinary background um, with, with some you know challenges and mistakes along the way. And my point that I'm trying to make is that that ordinary people can do big things, you know, if they're willing to get out of their comfort zone um, and try to make their own luck. And for me, luck isn't happenstance. Luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And again, I hope it's I hope the book is a is a is a call to empowerment um, for people to not hold back and 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 go after that, even if they feel like well. I don't have the superpower. Those people must know the magic. They must have the pixie dust or the magic wand. One of my favorite quotes is from Chuck Knoll, who's, you know, the legendary coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he said, champions aren't people who do extraordinary things. Champions are people who do the ordinary things better than anybody else. And I think that's a really powerful thing to, 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 to those of us, which is pretty much all of us, who are or consider themselves to be ordinary. Um, now to, to address your question, yeah, the the the, uh, the the coaching relationship with an athletic director, in my experience, is very challenging because, especially with your uh, power coaches, if you will, you know, men's basketball, um, uh, football, in some places it's hockey and 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 you know other things. But at Indiana, it might include swimming and men's soccer. But your your major revenue sports, um, you know. Uh, you've got a lot of invested in these folks, and their success is your success. And I poured my blood, sweat, and tears, man, um, into these uh, folks with, you know, I would give them books, and I would write them letters, and I would, you know, be at all the, you know, tough times and the losing locker rooms. And, 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 and sometimes there comes a point where you decide you need to make it a change. And, and if somebody's doing something stupid – like stealing money or or abusing their kids, then you know that's awful, but it's easy because that's the reason. But when it's performance based, and you've got to be like, well, you know, what 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 standard do you use, and, and what mitigating circumstances do you take into account, and they're doing their best, and they haven't done anything wrong, you just determine that you need to go somewhere else. That's hard. So you're taking someone that. Again, you've poured your blood, sweat, and tears on. You're in the foxhole with them. You're sort of defending them publicly. And then one day, you take them out. And that just feels like a huge betrayal to them. And I get that. And, you know, maybe it is, but I don't think it is because I never owed my duty to that coach. I owed my duty to the institution. And, and I learned that when I was in government. I didn't owe my duty to my colleagues in the government governor's office or my or by fellow party members in the legislature, I owe the duty to the people of the state of Indiana. Um, but but that gets lost on coaches, and and um, and and so when you make those tough choices, it's 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 hardest on the coach because <laughs> they're getting fired. But it's but it's it was hard on me, and Barbara would laugh because I'd lose, 
you know, 15 pounds going through, you know, the firing of a, of a major coach. And, um, um, really when, when I, when I separated from Kevin Wilson and Tom Crean, the two power coaches in a hundred days, that's when I really started thinking, you know, I'll, I'll probably retire at some point because I didn't want to go through that again. And my timing, uh, in addition to being with the, um, with the uh, bicentennial was really to avoid another cycle with major coaches because I, I didn't want to do that again. I think uh, the most compelling story you tell about your time as an AD at, at IU had nothing to do with the decision you made, had nothing to do with what happened to IU sports in, in the recent past. It had to do with a letter, an angry letter that you received about something that happened in IU football, I think in the late 60s, early 70s. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, I was, you know, minding my own business and, and um, got, a, got a letter forwarded to me that had been sent to the uh, president of, of IU um, by this um, person in very incendiary, demanding tones about wanting a uh, uh, sort of uh, to address perceived wrongs by the IU-10, which was a group of 10 African-American football players who in 1968 um, um, ended up boycotting the, the team and, and, and leaving the team after their um, demands for um, consideration of what they viewed as uh, remediation of racial discrimination uh, weren't addressed, um, and I go into much more detail in the book. But the but the but the takeaway of that is um, it, it was probably the greatest experience of my professional life because we were able to listen to the message, not the messenger, and see beyond those. In my view, were kind of gratuitously incendiary. Uh, entrees to to reach out and say look you're part of the family families talk when they're uh hurt come come and see us and we spent three or four days together and and ironically perhaps the person that um wrote those initial letters that i found off-putting became one of the most um compassionate important um bridge builders in the process you know and and i didn't think of it at the time because times had not gotten as bad as they are now but but i think in this environment of polarization where talking heads on cable tv and political candidates and you know anonymous cowards on social media are telling us to be afraid of each other and and that the, the, the those people are bad and those people are the reason that you're in a tough spot um I think if we could just let down our guard a little bit and look at, at look at what binds us together, and 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 look and assume that people are coming to interactions in good faith and not out to screw us or get us or something, so much could be accomplished and so much angst and you know acrimony could be avoided. And I, and I hold up the IU ten as as a great example of that. Those you know the the comments from those men were incredible. That you know. One of them said, I, 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 I landed in Indianapolis a bitter, embittered man, and I leave, you know, 
feeling totally free and loving my alma mater again. And that was very reflective of, of how folks felt down the line. And, and, and for me and, and my colleagues from the administration, it was this incredible um, sharing and understanding and communication that will always be, um, as, you, as you point out, beyond the championships and the baskets made and even graduation rates and all that stuff, um, reconnecting with those guys um, was was the highlight of my time as athletic director. You may have already answered this question, but I'll ask it a different way here. Going back to politics as we wrap this up, the last governor that was a Democrat that was elected in the state of Indiana was Frank O'Bannon. What will it take for Democrats to be competitive statewide in Indiana again? Um, well, the pendulum tends to swing back and forth. So when I was a young person, um, the idea that a Democrat could be successful in Marion County was a joke. Um, and even statewide, it was a joke. Our senators were Republicans. The Republicans had held the governor's office. Um, and then Evan By arrived on the scene and um, um, broke out uh, the, the, the brand and made it okay statewide to vote for Democrats. And, and then who would have ever thought, what, well, we won four elections in a row. Evan was elected twice and Franco Bannon twice. So, so and, and, then, and then sort of the demographics of Indianapolis have made it a, 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 a Democratic city, which, you know, I never thought in a million years would happen when I was in my 20s and 30s. So, so it can happen. The pendulum can swing. As we sit here today, Larry, it's hard for me to think of how that happens statewide. Um, but I think it can, and um, um, I, I hope that um, Hoosier common sense prevails and, and the politics of, of division and fear, um, which unfortunately is um, part of the, 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 the leaders of the current Republican Party. It's not what the Republican Party is about. Republican Party is an awesome positive for 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 uh, um, supporting this country and always um, has been since the time of Lincoln. But unfortunately, I think that party's been um, hijacked um, by those who seek to cling to power by dividing us against each other. And my, my hope is that um, Hoosier common sense um, prevails and and people will see beyond um, um, that. And and um, reject um, the uh, extremists in the Republican Party, and, and whether they turn to Democrats or more traditional Republicans, um, I don't really care. I just I just hope um, we reject the uh, the extremists that that are hijacking that party and want to hijack the country. I tried to keep this to about forty five minutes. Uh, that was a challenge. Wanted to talk more about the Jesuits, who are also uh, in your book, and, and the influence the Jesuit priests had on you. But just as my final question, uh, anything else you would like to talk about related to your book, or anything else uh, before we wrap this up? Um, I'll just take a point of personal privilege, Larry, to, to, to say how much I'm appreciative to have become a extended member of the Lannan family. You know, in some ways. Our fathers couldn't have been more different, you know. My dad was an alcoholic who was never home, small business owner, very erratic. Your dad, career government person, I think he 
at home like clockwork. He was there um, day in and day out for his family. But as uh, you know, your mother was a homemaker with six kids. Um, my mom was a you know professional woman that worked outside the home. So you know, I'm an only child. You guys are six kids. So on the surface of it, we look very different. But the values are very consistent. Like your dad was so progressive on issues involving social justice and racial justice, um, was a leader in his credit union, in his, in his, his union. Um, and um, my father was very, and my mother were very progressive on racial issues and social justice. So Barbara and I share this uh, common value system that, that I've always really appreciated and, 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 you know, her siblings and you lead the, the way have always been very, um, progressive on those things. So I just, you know, want to take this time to thank you and, and your family for inviting me in. And, and it's been a good ride here for almost 40 years. Well, you're very kind in your remarks. We've always loved having you and all my other, uh, you know, in-laws that have been a part of my family. Right. I would have to say, if you care anything about IU athletics, politics in Indiana, and just uh, some uh, advice for life. Making Your Own Luck by Fred Glass is a great book. I'm a little biased, but I did enjoy reading it, and I think anybody would uh, enjoy reading it, particularly if you're from Indiana. Fred Glass, thank you for your time today. Larry, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Mm-hmm.